1032. If you want to crack a Bible, that'd be great, or your device, or uh, actually it's page 7 in the Pew Bibles if you want to uh, turn to there. Um, that would be great. But just to remind you guys a little bit about where we've been and what Genesis is about. So actually, if you haven't been here at all yet, or if the Bible's new to you, uh, Genesis means beginnings. So it's the book of beginnings, the first book of the Old Testament, and therefore the whole Bible. Genesis is about a lot of stuff. It's a collection of narratives, a collection of stories. I'll actually mention that here in a little bit, too, in reference to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but it's, it's specifically about, and this is one thing, but it's very important to understand this, because to understand this is to get the book, and, and to get the book is to get the whole Bible uh, in some capacity. Genesis is a book about the tension between a curse and punishment for sin and unexpected divine blessing and whispers of grace and a way out from death at the same time. Juxtaposed or set right next to each other. Uh, both are from God. God is the most just being in the universe and he's the most merciful being in the universe, which can seem to compete. And, and in a sense, they kind of do. Uh, maybe especially here in the story, until we get to the remedy, until we get to the cross where both kind of meet perfectly. Uh, in a sense, they kind of compete. It's only later than, again, it, it, later in the biblical story that we see them come together perfectly at the cross. But in the meantime, they both coexist as these right, beautiful, and true expressions of the character of God, the consequence of sin, and whispers, again, like I was saying, of the future remedies that he has yet to bring. So understand that when you're reading the Bible, if you're new especially to the Bible, but even if you're not, there are whispers of the remedy, and there is, then, then there's the remedy. Uh, both are not on equal plane. Uh, they're related. Uh, the whispers are lesser, but they're very important, but they point to the latter thing. And so these glimpses that we're getting of God's goodness and his mercy and, and his salvation, his blessing we're going to see today are glimpses of Christ later on. And so when you, when you connect these things, it becomes a lot easier to kind of sort through the muck, you know, to blow at the fog of confusion. Today's a really confusing passage if you don't have Christ. If you don't have Jesus, if you don't have the end of the book in mind, uh, it's really, really confusing and quite boring, uh, honestly, because it's sort of, it's, it's an island unto itself. It's a lot of confusing names that don't mean a lot, and it's a really strange story about a family after a flood that you're going to probably scratch your head and say, what in the world is doing in the Bible? And that's actually the question I'm going to ask today, is what in the world is doing in the Bible? That's like the big question, but we'll, we'll, we'll come to that. Uh, Peter explained where we kind of are in the story. God's made the world. Uh, sin has come into the world. A worldwide flood has ensued. God has destroyed all life except Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives and a bunch of animals to repopulate the earth, but also to express grace. So God saving Noah and his family was not utilitarian. It wasn't just, I, I, I want people to exist again, so I'm going to save some. It wasn't that. It was he, he loved them. And they had faith in him, deep trust in him. And so, again, it's, it's this juxtaposed thing of consequence for sin and punishment and whispers of grace. Kind of like, you ever seen those commercials where there's cars kind of weaving in and out of orange cones back and forth? Kind of this cool, you know, always says closed course or professional drivers or whatever at the bottom. It's kind of, it's kind of like that. You have consequence for sin, you have, you have grace. Kind of like, how can those things coexist? Christ makes sense of it later on. And so we're always looking ahead. We're on this side of the cross. He blows at the fog of confusion. But God is just and good and merciful to express both, both things in the world, to kind of pronounce both, both things upon people and upon situations and upon history and the world as, as a whole. And so today then we're post-flood. Uh, the, the flood waters have receded. The ark's been opened. All the animals and the people come out and 
the process of repopulating the earth has begun. And one of the things we see right away is that something happens with Noah's family that's just weird, but it serves as this place, this kind of uh, platform for Noah to, pr- to kind of pronounce curses and blessings upon his sons in different capacities. And then we'll talk about why that is and how that serves to kind of inform further there are two types of people in the world. There's kind of a line of blessing and a line of curse. This is a pre-flood thing. It's a post-flood thing as well. Like Peter was saying, sin is still a problem. And so we'll come back to that too, looking at the theme of division and also how Christ himself is the remedy is uh, whispered here today and some other things. There's just a lot going on that I'll uh, try to touch on a lot of things here today um, before all is said and done. So, so let's read Genesis 9, 18 to 10, 32. This is abridged. I'm leaving out a couple of sections uh, for the sake of time alone, but this is the gist. We're going to read most of it, actually. Genesis 9, 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth were dispersed. The people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So now we move into the, the Table of Nations proper section, chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Cush fathered Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from, the si- from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, so stop right there for a second before we finish this. A couple of comments here on the line of Ham. We'll, we'll come back to some of this, but you may have noticed, especially if you've read some of the Old Testament, know a little bit about Israel's history, you may have noticed that a number of men here, these are people's names, uh, who later become nations, people like Egypt, uh, which may be the more obvious one, but you may have noticed a number of men who would later become cities and nations that serve later in the biblical story as obstacles to the enemies of God's people, Israel. So Israel is yet to become a people or a national entity. This is pre-all of that. But these are people who later kind of populate areas. They become nations and cities and so forth that serve as obstacles or enemies of of the people of God. So uh, in in yellow here is the big examples. So Egypt and Canaan, uh, Babel, which later becomes Babylon, uh, Assyria, uh, even Sodom and Gomorrah here, which is uh, pre-Israel but uh, serves as kind of a a picture of a city of, of sin and wickedness and and judgments and, uh, and so forth. So 
So simply by name here, this is all the line of Ham, uh, Noah's youngest, simply by name or names, we can trace a lot of the evil and the threat and the obstacle uh, between uh, pe- the people of God and, and, and the land maybe they're trying to enter that God is giving to them, or just be- kind of between people and God, trace all that back to Ham. And so one of the questions that we're going to ask today is, why is this? And, and we'll talk about that. Genesis 9 gives us some clues as to why this is kind of the line of sin, the line of evil, the line of obstacle, the line of Satan, you could say, in a lot of ways. And we'll piece together some of that. Um, but the why, but this is sort of the what at this point, that this is all these people, these future cities, and uh, that kind of resemble sin, resemble death, resemble the problem in the world uh, come from. Uh, back to him. So, anyway, let's keep reading. Uh, verse 21. To Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mosh. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. So a couple of quick things here, just to kind of get our bearings again, biblically, theologically, but also just kind of factually. Uh, Uz uh, here first, so the first name in yellow is uh, the man who kind of uh, populated the area that was later called Uz that uh, gave rise to the, the man Job. So if you know Job, the story of Job in the Old Testament, uh, that's where he was a descendant of Uz, we can likely conclude, and, and he came uh, from uh, from that area. So if you know a little bit about Job, he was, and this is a very crude kind of summary, but Job was uh, what we call an innocent sufferer, a, a righteous sufferer, and, and he, he ties back to Shem. So Shem is, is to be clear, uh, the line of Israel, which is ultimately the line of Christ. This is the line, this is the man ultimately through whom Jesus, God's remedy for all the wickedness and problems and sin in the world comes from. And so Job is part of that group or that line uh, in a sense, even though we we uh, trace Jesus back specifically to a different uh, son, Eber. And Eber was, um, and so Jesus, rese- I should have mentioned this, Jesus resembles Job in those ways. I'm not going to mention too much about that. A little bit later on, we'll come back to that, but just kind of a, a, a reminder that this is not just history. It's not just geography. There's resemblance here. And so when we talk about Jesus coming from a line, it's not just, oh, this is the bloodline of Christ. I mean, that's kind of helpful. The, the theological point is to see how is Jesus like these people that came before him. So you can tie it back to Job. Jesus was also a righteous sufferer. Uh, he suffered for not doing wrong. He suffered according to the plan of God. And like Job, actually, at the end of the book, if you know that story, he intercedes for and saves his friends. So Jesus is the ultimate one to do that, to, to, to righteously and innocently suffer and to intercede for and save the church. Uh, so there's resemblance there. But, but also... Uh, going back to, and, and we see, and we'll talk about Shem. He resembles Shem in a lot of ways today, but I also want for your bearings to get in uh, verse 25. Eber and Peleg are more of these direct descendants of Abraham, who comes later in uh, chapter 11 in the first part of chapter 12, which we'll preach on uh, in a couple of weeks here. But Eber is uh, the word we get Hebrews from. And so uh, the Hebrews, the early Hebrews, uh, were the ones who later became known as the Israelites. It's actually Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is renamed Israel. But 
Uh, it's these, the early Jews, essentially. It wasn't until later in history they were called Jews, too, but that's kind of the progression. The Hebrews to the Israelites to the Jews. We can trace all that back to, to Eber and, again, back to Shem. This is the line of salvation. This is the line of faith. This is the line of, of hope. This is the line of God doing something in the world to kind of reverse what Ham's all about, to undo that, to kind of counter it. And so we have glimpses of that just by name here, but also... Uh, some areas of resemblance. I gave you kind of a hint there with uh, Uz and Job and so forth. We'll talk about Shem a little bit more today. So one more verse, verse 32 of chapter 10. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. All right, so like I said before, the, the big question today is, uh, what in the world is all of this doing in the Bible? At least I, that's, I have in the world here, but that's basically the spirit of the question. What in the world is all this doing here? It's always, inten- it's always intentional. God doesn't make a mistake. There's theology here, not just information. And so we're going to try to blow out the fog of confusion here with Christ in mind, uh, but also just theology proper in mind. Uh, one thing I want to say before, I have three big things today, but one I kind of thought of last minute, so I don't have a slide for this, but is just acknowledge that we all came from the same place. Passages like this tell us we all have the same origins. And so why that's important is because then we can't say that we're not sinners. Because all these men and women here mentioned are in the story are, are sinful. And Peter was talking about that before as well. Sin survived uh, the, the flood. And so we can't, we can't conclude, if they're the only survivors of the worldwide flood, that maybe there was another race of humans that existed who didn't sin as much. Or maybe never sinned. That maybe I'm from them. <laughs> you know? Like none of us can trace back and go, well, maybe I'm from this other race. We all came from these people. All of us in the room, everyone who's ever lived, came from Noah and his family. We're seeing a table of nations here kind of describe the initial dispersion and so forth. And next week we'll talk about this a little bit more as well. But we all came from them. So again, genealogically, but pattern-wise, if they're sinners, we are. It's just that simple. We inherit that, the Bible says. We're, we're sinners by choice, but Ephesians 2 in the New Testament says by nature as well. So we're, we're sinners by this kind of, of nature. Noah and his family were sinners, and they unfortunately uh, passed this, uh, this on to all of their posterity, all of their offspring. So that's the bad side. The good side, though, is we can say, uh, like we've been saying in the series, if this is a mirror, if these stories are really about us, then God's posture of you know salvific workings towards this family are also his towards us so the way god speaks grace the way he provides a way out the way he's patient and kind it's towards noah and his family and actually that means that's about us because we are from him as well see how it's historical and theological we really did come from them and it means a lot these theological truths mean a lot more if we actually believe that you know if, if we don't it's like well it starts to raise question of are we really that bad did adam and eve really live did they really sin is this really where we all came from so this is why history and truth uh, are are and the, the literalness of all this are really important because theologically we can pretty quickly start to question i don't know if i'm as bad as they were I don't know if we've inherited. Maybe there's a different, a coexisting group of people that maybe I descended from them. Maybe I'm not as bad. The flip side of that, though, that the dangerous side is, is then God is maybe less involved in our life as well because he's intimately, passionately, constantly 
uh, pursuing a wicked people like this and speaking to them by grace and promising ways out and, and so forth. So anyway, so part of what we do with this kind of stuff is just say we all have the same origin, not just on a genealogical level, but a, a sin level, but also kind of a God level on the good side of it. All right, with that said, let's go to the three big things today. The first is, uh, we've kind of been mentioning this, the, the first why in the world is all this in the Bible answer is to further demonstrate how bad things are. Sin is everywhere. The, the flood did not wash souls, you could say. It washed a lot of things. It kind of purified the earth, but it didn't go inside and wash our DNA. It didn't wash sin and, and our propensity to not care that much about God or not care that much about eternity, not care that much about other people, to be prone to rebellion, to hurting others, to worship of the self, um, all of that stayed kind of inextricably wrapped around uh, who we are as, as human beings. So uh, that's the bad news. And we see that play out in this weird story with Noah and his, his sons, one of, them, one of them seeing him naked and kind of ripping on him or whatever he's doing to his other brothers. We'll talk about that. We see some dysfunction there, but the big thing in chapter 10, this is part of what is being kind of alluded to or suggested, is that division takes place. So in... Uh, one was born of Eber, or sorry, of... Um, or yeah, one was born named Peleg, for in his days the earth... Was divided. In his days, the earth was divided. And on multiple levels, as we read there, maybe you saw this, on ethnic, geographic, and linguistic levels. So lots of division. People are scattered. They don't live around each other. They can't talk to each other. There's uh, ethnic differences. The earth is divided. Filling the earth, God wanted. He said, make babies and fill the earth. That's the good side. The bad side is this word division. That's not a good thing. Division. So Peleg, by name, kind of uh, mentions this and references this, and, and that's the darker side to it. And it certainly would have borne, as you might expect, as we experience this today, all kinds of, of sadness and depression and deep-seated sorrow as those types of divisions kind of started to rise up from Noah and his family and the kids that they had and, and all of this. So there's this kind of a slowness to how that happened, but there's also big events like the Tower of Babel incident, which we'll preach on next week. And it's kind of, kind of confusing because Babel happens before chapter 10. So there's some, there's some anachronism here uh, that um, the Bible's doing for certain reasons. But Babel happens first, it kind of, or at least it happens concurrently with all these nations being talked about as having different languages because it's at Babel when humanity, if you know the story, was united against God and, and they said we can do anything we want and God comes down and disperses them by confusing their language and that's next week's sermon. But anyway, so bigger widespread cataclysmic dispersion events happened here uh, too as a consequence of sin, as a consequence of rebellion, as a consequence of arrogance and, and pride. But again, on either side, slow or fast, dispersion would have breeded uh, confusion, right? And, and sadness at a very high level, not unlike saying goodbye to a sibling, leaving the state for work, or a friend uh, or something like that, uh, going off to a different college. Because, But that times a thousand or... 10,000 or a million because they would be, have been doing it in so many, on so many levels at once, to so many people at once. And this is obviously pre-Facebook, so, you know, goodbye meant goodbye. It was it. It was decisive. It was done. Uh, goodbye meant, which meant it was kind of like death. It was that final. Relational separation uh, hurts. And, and theologically, 
remember this from earlier in the series if you were here. All of this rubber bands back to God in our relationship with him. Graham Goldsworthy says, and I read this a few weeks ago, but if you weren't here, Graham Goldsworthy says this about human relationships. Human relationships break down as a direct result of the breakdown in relationship between God and mankind. This is the key. All human conflict reflects our conflict with God. All human conflict reflects, points to, flows from our conflict with God. Now that is a truth, but it's also an interpretational methodology. Remember back in Genesis 3, it says, after sin came into the world, towards Adam and Eve, God says, uh, you need to leave the garden. It says, it says God cast them out of the garden in Genesis 3.23, away from the garden of his presence. That was the initial thing that happened. Separation from God, we're not where he is. That, that occurred amongst uh, a variety of other things that are kind of curse-related, but that was, that was principle. God cast them out of the garden. And, and later in the Bible, it talks about how humanity is far away from God and, and all that. But, so it's a truth, but it's an interpretational thing as well. So that I think the Bible invites us into this. When we're reading these kinds of things in the Bible that seem just very kind of passing and not that important, when we see division happen on human levels, it's inviting us to see a whisper and a glimpse of our, our division from God, our separation from him. We might think those things can kind of coexist separately. Uh, God does not. God first separates us, us from him on the heels of sin coming into the world, and then human relationships are messed up as a result of it. Uh, they flow from the former. So if you just kind of reverse engineer that thing, human, and, human relationships being messed up points back to our relationship with God being, uh, being messed up. So that, then it becomes a way we view reality as well. You know, every time, and this is, just complements the way we'd read the Bible and kind of preach these truths to each other, this explains why we miss people. I mean, very basic stuff like that. Why we miss people because we miss God. And, and we could say this to an atheist, to someone who's or maybe very spiritual but not a Christian yet. We'd say that because they're all made in God's image. We all have eternity in our hearts, the Bible says. We miss people because we miss God. Every day, saying goodbye to people we love, you know, uh, no matter how temporary, even if it's just for eight, nine hours, you know, one person going to work or both people in a marriage going to work and they say goodbye, uh, even if it's just temporary, saying goodbye to people we love becomes a redemptive historical drama in our life on the front end of that drama uh, because it whispers and images being separated from God. And, and so, and that's not even a sin thing, right? I mean, just going to work is not bad. It's a good thing. So sometimes saying goodbye, is not, it's not a sin thing, but it's a, it's a whisper of, of a problem, and a very big one at that. I mean, pe people say, uh, you know, war is hell. And it, and it is. I mean, war is, war is hell. That's like a, that's a picture of interpersonal problems, right? And where, where death is a big piece to that. That's a an interpersonal uh, breakdown in relationships. War is hell. But saying goodbye to loved ones is very hellish as well. It's just on a lesser level. It's, it's a whisper of hell. But saying goodbye to someone you love, whether it's for eight hours, eight days, eight years, or maybe forever if it's at a, at a funeral, it's a whisper of hell. We weren't meant for that. 
See, guys, every time we have a moment of that, every time we have a moment of this isn't right to be separated from my spouse or my friends. I don't like this feeling of my best friend moving to wherever to work. Uh, that, that, that's a glimpse of the, we call this the redemptive historical drama. We feel that because we're separated from God. So it, it can, we can preach these truths, we can feel these truths. I mean, how else do you explain the feeling? Just to get kind of philosophical about it for a second. How else do we explain the feeling? Where else does it come from, ultimately? Right? God has separated us from him because of sin, and he's also dispersed human beings as a reflection. And we have as well. Uh, we've dispersed ourselves from others. We've hated others. We've left others. We've arrogantly said we don't need anybody to live a happy life, and we've dispersed ourselves from people as a reflection of where we're at with, with God. All right, so let's uh, close with that. I'm just kidding. Uh, now on to the better news. Uh, there's some good news here too. So the second thing is, uh, so the question again, why in the world is all this in the Bible? The second thing is to demonstrate that there are different lines of people in Genesis or types of people in Genesis, revealing to us that God is still at work blessing or saving, these are synonymous ideas, blessing or saving, people in a cursed world. <clears throat> All right, so a little bit of backdrop here, if this is a new concept to you, um, or just to remind you. Remember that Genesis, as we kind of said earlier, is a book of genealogies and family narratives and bloodlines. That's what Genesis is. And, and a lot of Old Testament books narratively are kind of uh, take cue from that and, and follow suit, but especially Genesis. So, so theology is derived in part from genealogical patterns and family resemblance. Or, you know, or we could say theological truth is imaged narratively in the story or symbolically in the story. So as we've seen already, uh, right after sin comes into the world, this is earlier in Genesis if you were here for this, different lines or patterns of people start to arise. The first two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, represent different types of people. Different Immediately we see this. Uh, we see one line representing salvation and blessing and faith that ultimately leads to Jesus. And we see another line or other lines, plural, that represent rejection and cursing and trying to justify ourselves before God by our works that flows from being a child of the devil. This is a pre-flood reality and now it continues as a post-flood reality through Noah's blessing and cursing of his posterity. So the big question uh, is, is why, right? Why are some blessed and why are some cursed? He's not just doing this. The Bible uh, takes care to show us that it, it's kind of flowing from an event <laughs> that happens right after uh, the flood and God covenants with Noah and the earth, promises to not flood again and all that. There's this weird story. So chapter 9 gives us the answer to that. And, and there's more to say than just 9. There's more going on. This is not on an island. But uh, the end of chapter 9 gives us the answer uh, of why some are blessed and why some are cursed through the lens of a very, very strange story. So just to summarize this for you, and you know, we can go back, but to summarize what just happened at the end of 9, the Bible says uh, Noah becomes a man uh, who works the ground, he um, grows grapes, he makes wine, he gets drunk, he passes out. Ham, his youngest son, sees his father naked, disrespects him to his brothers, so we don't know a lot of what happens there, probably goes out and just says, Tad's an idiot, here he is again, you know, passed out, naked, you guys, you know, just whatever. Um, likely making fun of him, but 
Shem and Japheth take the high road. They don't see their father naked. They kind of put a blanket over their shoulders and back up like this. Their faces faced away from him, allow that blanket to fall on their dad and, and leave, ultimately taking care of him and respecting him and cover, literally covering him up. So the moral of the story is don't see your dad naked. <laughs> um, no, it's not. Well, actually, it probably is kind of a takeaway. Um, there's actually some truth to that, I just realized. That's probably not just funny. That actually is, no, whatever. Um, aside from don't see your dad naked, though, uh, there's something deeper going on. In the con- here, and here's what it is. In the context of not honoring a father figure, so you've got to do this in biblical theology sometimes, just try to summarize the story with the facts, and then it tells you what the spiritual truths are as, as you know what the rest of the gospel and the storyline is all about. So it's in the context of not honoring a father figure that the curse is given to Ham's line or his posterity, Canaan and his descendants in this case. Which if you've been here and you know a little bit about the Bible, other parts of Genesis, it sounds a lot like Genesis 3, doesn't it? In 1, 2, and 3. When Adam and Eve do the same thing essentially to God, the ultimate father, and they dishonor him and they're cursed because of it. So Genesis 6 to 9 is kind of like another creation narrative and fall narrative. And so you can see this a little bit easier. I have a chart here. On the left, at the first part of the scriptures in Genesis 1 to 3, it's the story of God making land from amidst the seas, the chaotic waters. He creates mankind. He blesses them and commands them to fill the earth. Mankind dishonors God, their heavenly father, and a curse follows. In this section, so we've looked at the flood. Genesis 6 to 9 is the story of the flood as well. So incorporating that is the story of God recreating and bringing forth land again after the flood. And so everything's water again like it was in the beginning and God recedes the waters, and land comes forth. It's recreation. God brings forth Noah, commands him and his family, commands him the same things he did Adam and Eve, says, fill the earth, make babies. He also blesses them in the way he did Adam and Eve. Same exact thing. Ham dishonors Noah, his earthly father, so a whisper of what happened in the beginning, and then a curse, really the same kind of curse in a lot of ways follow. So the big thing to see here is that Ham's dishonoring of his father whispers afresh humanity's greater dishonoring of God, the ultimate father. Creation's happening again, and so is a fall to sin. The Bible does this a lot. It works in cycles. It repeats patterns a lot to make points. Uh, And as I think Peter was saying this before too, recreation and now another fall to remind us sin is still here is happening uh, again. On the opposite side, so with Shem and Japheth, they represent a different line, though. They, they represent hope. They represent the line of Christ or faith or blessing in that they image fatherly respect. They image fatherly respect and revering and honoring. Uh, on a human level, which then images respecting, revering, honoring the ultimate father, God. It, it tells us that maybe things aren't as bad as they could be. I mean, to have humanity as a whole rejecting God the Father, and yet to have this micro story of a couple of brothers respecting their dad, how do those go together? It's hope that God is at work, inspiring obedience, inspiring a new way, inspiring reverence. I mean, later there's a, a, a ten, one of the Ten Commandments later in the story is honor your father and mother. Why? Because we dishonored the ultimate father, God. And so the commandments kind of come back in to counter what ultimate sin 
uh, really is. Honoring the fa- honoring fathers and mothers are a really important thing as it flows from honoring honoring God, the ultimate father. So, so this, this tells us that there's hope. And, and it also, to kind of back up a little bit further, it reminds us that blessing, which is the same thing as salvation, comes not so much from tireless morality, though they did do the right thing here, but it, it comes from a right posture towards a father figure, or namely God. And that's a really important theme to get here. I mean, you know, so when we look at Shem and, and Japheth, they're not saving the world from all its problems, and they're rewarded. Where does salvation come from in this instance? Where does blessing come from? They're simply having a right posture of respect towards a father figure. See, this is telling us, this is a greater theme throughout the Bible, this tells us where, what blessing is really all about. What it means to be saved is to face God in the right way. It's, it's to return respect and honor uh, towards him. Not to save the world from all its problems. Not even tireless morality. Simply faith. Which is what we lost in the beginning. When we all disrespected and kind of uncovered, in a sense, you could say, the nakedness of God. Or we uh, disrespected and, and made fun of and claimed him to be not as important as he said he was in the very beginning. Became our own gods. We all dishonored him. Went our own way, the Bible says. Salvation and blessing is the opposite of that. It's having a simple act of honor and respect uh, towards our ultimate dad, our ultimate father, who is God. So in the same way then, you know, later the Bible uses similar language just to say that where, where does true wisdom come from? Just fearing God, having a right posture towards God. And then more expansively, it says honor God, glorify God, honor God, respect him in that capacity by receiving his gospel and living a life of thankfulness and recentering everything we are around him and him alone. That's what this is whispering and that's what it's saying afresh to the church, you guys. And if you're not Christians, it's saying this to you. What does it mean to be saved? It means to look at God and say that, that I believe in you. You're central. You alone save, I don't. And in that honor, your heavenly father in the spirit of what's happening uh, here. But we have to say, we still have to ask the question, what is his gospel? Right? So if, if it, blessing is having respect towards God or having honor towards him, facing him in the right way, and to receive his, we have to ask that question, well, what is the good news? What, what is his gospel? What's the fulfillment of this? What is this story pointing to? We can actually see that here as well. We don't have to go elsewhere, though we will. Uh, we can see that right here as well imaged beautifully for us. And that's, that's the third thing. Why is this in the Bible? To demonstrate the gospel remedy ahead of time, whispering the solution himself. And so to, to, to help this make sense, I, I want to remind you guys that genealogy, we're looking at Shem's line here specifically, but genealogy is about resemblance, not just bloodlines. So the question is, how does God's ultimate remedy look a lot like Shem? And the answer is Christ would come in the line of Shem, ultimately in the line of covering nakedness. If God, if God is in the business of instituting themes here in Genesis that Jesus later fulfills, and he is, then what line, how do, how do we characterize the line that Jesus came from? What is the line of Shem? It's a line Israel ultimately comes from. We can do better than that, though. It's the line here, before any of these blessings and curses come into the world through Noah, it's the line of covering nakedness. 
which is good news. And it should especially make us think, well, if that's true, does God talk about himself in, the, in that capacity elsewhere in the Bible? And he does, gloriously. He already has, actually, in Genesis 3, 21, it said, God took care to cover up the nakedness of Adam and Eve. It said, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. In the last book of the Bible, too, and it's bookended with this idea, Revelation 3, Jesus' words, he says to the church, I counsel you to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And so the question that this passage in Genesis confronts us with is, do you want to know who Jesus is, the ultimate Shem? Do you want to know what this line is all about theologically, not just factually, not just historically, but theologically? What does this represent? His gospel, what has he done for us? Look at Shem. Look at Japheth, his forefather. He resembles them. Like later, and this is a more clear one, like it says, he resembles his forefather David. Jesus says, I am the son of David. I resemble him. He typified me. It's the same with all of his predecessors, or at least a lot of them, as, in as much as the scriptures make these, make these connections for us. He's like Shem. He's a nakedness coverer, a shame coverer. He's not like Ham. Ham here in the story is a picture of one who exposes nakedness, who ridicules and mocks. He's actually a Satan figure. This is exactly what the Bible says Satan does towards Christians and, and humanity. He blames us before God. God, these people you're intending to save, worthless. Look what they did. And he lists out sins before the throne all the time. Look at what they've done. Look at who they are. This is a satanic thing. Ham is a picture of, of evil here in Satan, exposing nakedness, blaming, ridiculing, mocking. But not Japheth and not Shem, especially Shem. Shem is a sin passer over her. He's a coverer. He's a savior. And, and note that, that all of this is happening uh, while Noah is passed out drunk. That's, that's one of my favorite parts about this passage. What's Noah doing here when, he, when, when he's being covered, right? Absolutely nothing. He's passed out drunk. He's asleep, and he's being covered over and respected by his sons. That's a glorious truth to bank on when you're in the throes of sin. That will give you joy in the midst of the darkest times of your life. I mean, do you ever feel that way? Or better yet, is that you? Is that me? What does this tell us? It tells us again and yet again this glorious truth. You and I are saved by God's grace, not by works. Because what is Noah doing here? Is he, is he, working, for, is he working for his coverage? See, here's, here's the glorious truth about it. God does not expect you and me to sober up before we're saved. That's a relief. He doesn't even ask us to be awake, spiritually speaking. Just that you believe in him and his saving grace. If Jesus is like Shem, then he is willing to save us when we're passed out in sin. And there's nothing he can't cover with his blood. That's the gospel today. That's the gospel ahead of time in this passage. And actually, it's worse than Noah being, it's, it's worse than us being passed out drunk. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, we're actually dead in our sins. So, so we, we need someone to cover us when we're naked and when we're sh shame-filled, when we're passed out drunk, spiritually speaking. But we also need a tomb raider, essentially. We need a resurrector. 
We need one to call into tombs and say to dead things who are not performing before him, who are not good in and of themselves, who are not moral, who are not saving the world with their volunteerism. We need one to call in and say, live. Be sober spiritually. Awake, O sleeper, the Bible says elsewhere. You see, it's by grace that we're covered. And so this is amazing news if this is us. If this is, see, if we see ourselves as like Noah here, it's amazingly good news. If we don't, it's, not, it's just it's not that good a news because we think we're better. We'll have contempt. But if we're oblivious, and this is actually where it gets really good news, I think. If we're oblivious to the things of God, it, or if we feel nothing for him. Did you ever feel nothing for God? Do you ever feel like the last thing you want to do is be a good person? The last thing you want to do is come here and hear the gospel again? Well, the good news is that God came for you. God came for those types of people. If you're in that category, amazing news. Because you're like Noah, past, like, like I am, passed out in your sin, dreaming about something else, not, not with a care in the world in terms of spiritual things, and God came to cover you. If you're saved, that's what's happened. What an amazing narrative, right? That was you. That was me. That was all of the church ahead of time. Covered by Shem, who would later give way to an ultimate Shem, a capital S Shem, a Christ, kind of like a Job, a righteous, innocent sufferer, the one from the line of Shem who would also cover nakedness on a higher level. So he covers our guilt and our shame. Are you shame-filled for something you've done? Do you feel full of guilt? Covered. Do you feel distant from him? Covered. Are you too inebriated by your sin, even right now in this room? Can you just not help but think about porn because of how you spent your morning or your weekend? Can you just not help but get out of your mind? Good news. He came for Noah's. He came for people drunk and inebriated by sin. You can't help but think about wickedness. He covers you by his blood. He covers you by his righteousness. He covers you with white robes. He covers you. And, and like, like Shem and Japheth didn't see his, his fa- their father's nakedness, God, when he looks at you when you believe in Jesus, does not see your sin, your naked shame. The Bible calls this uh, forgetting sin elsewhere. Jesus so much dies for our sin, the Bible says he forgets it, forgets it. The God of the universe forgets your sin when, when you trust in Jesus and are covered, covered by the blanket of his blood. He forgets it. All those things you think about daily when you're thinking, there's no way I'm saved. I thought I was a Christian. I did this today. There's no way. Or he certainly remembers this. He forgets. Don't listen to the lie. Listen to the gospel of, of Genesis, Genesis 9. So what he asks then is, is to believe in the gospel of grace, to believe in the man on the cross. And it's, it's interesting, it says in Matthew 27, 28, that Christ specifically was stripped. And so we can conclude that, that Jesus was stripped naked. He's not here, but, but he was naked. Stripped naked to clothe us naked, shameful types. See, we, we needed a substitute. If we really are to be atoned for, if, if, if the problem of our spiritual nakedness, if it's defined that way, is a real thing, it needs to be, if God's just as well, it has to be absorbed or taken on or substituted for. 
And that's, that's the beautiful thing about the gospel is Jesus takes on all the sin and the punishment and the ramifications, even the symbolism for what our sin really is. The righteous one, the son of God, became naked and, and was put to shame on the cross, the Bible says, for us. So we might be clothed in righteousness. Even though we're, we're naked in our sins, he clothes us, he covers it up. He covers it up. Whatever you've done in life, I don't care what it is, God's grace is stronger. Whatever it is, whatever right now you're going through, God's grace is stronger. He provides a way out. 1 Peter 4.8 says, love covers sin. You know, I, in, I, I, this is actually a key text for my, the weddings that I do a lot of times. Because I want couples to know this, and Aletha and I, you know, we see this demonstrated in our marriage um, imperfectly, but it's still there, is because that, that command is for Christians towards each other. You guys, you should love other Christians, and if you're married, your spouses, because love covers a multitude of sins. Why does it do that? And we see this interpersonally. You might see it amongst friends as well. It's a truth because it's a, it's a truth with God. God's love for you shown through that man, and that is love. Love is sacrifice. That covers sins. Like the blanket covered Noah thousands of years before Jesus covers our shame. And it actually does, you guys. Isn't that amazing news? Please be free in that today. This is what he wants us to hear and see and feel and taste is this sin is a big deal. It's a problem. There's this glimpse of hope amidst all the crap going on back in Genesis, and there's a lot of it. There's this little glimpse of a couple of brothers covering their dad and not seeing their nakedness. And then a beautiful list of Jesus comes from those brothers. He comes from that one brother, Shem. He resembles him. And so one day he's going to do it at a, on a higher level, not just for Israel, but for the nations. I'll end with this. Uh, Isaiah 66, 18 says that the time, looking ahead to Christ, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. What's the sign? Right there. The sign of God gathering people, the man on the cross. The sign of God covering people again, gathering nations that are scattered back to himself, unification back to the Lord, getting back to Eden. That's the sign. That's the sign we behold, the ultimate sign of God that he's good and merciful and also just to forgive sins. Not just merciful, but he's just because he pours out uh, punishment on a willing substitute. The ultimate man of ooze, Job, if you know that story. The, the, the righteous, innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his friends at the end of the story. Blessed be, blessed be the God of the cross, as Genesis 9.27 says, the God of Shem. And I encourage you guys to know your God by that name. You don't have to call him this audibly if you don't want to or in prayer or otherwise, but know that your God, if, if you're a Christian, maybe you didn't know this, your God is, one of his names is the God of Shem, the God of covering nakedness. Praise be to God, that's the case that he does it by grace, not only earned it or deserved it when we're passed out drunk in our sin, 
That's the incredibly offensive, humbling, but joy-giving gospel. Didn't earn it, didn't deserve it, didn't do anything even to look for it. God, just in love, covered it. Praise be to God. So let's pray, and we'll have a a song or two here to close with. Thank you, God, so much for the gospel of of grace uh, looked ahead to from Genesis 9 and 10's perspective. Thank you for um, the, uh, the theological truth. Thank you for the good news, actually, amidst very bad news, uh, amidst a storyline of, of great punishment, of a great curse, of death. There, there's glimpses of this goodness, glimpses of hope, glimpses of a different way. Uh, and, and Noah's three sons serve as both storylines, um, Ham on the one side and, and Shem and Japheth, especially Shem on the other side. Uh, thank you that there's, the story doesn't end here, but there's another, kind, there's another Shem instance in the Bible that dwarfs this one. It's much more cosmic, much more all-encompassing, much more personal to us, much more in-gathering, much more shame-diffusing. It's when God became a human being to die for us on a cross so that we can be included now in his family. There's no more shame when we're included. We're actually loved and included. And our guilt's taken away too. Our sin's actually laid upon him. We're brought back. And God, so I I pray you would help us to believe that for the first or thousandth time today as we worship and respond here, um, to take communion in light of that, to remember the man on the cross who broke his body and shed his blood for us express the mercy and the justice of God. On your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond together with the truth that all I have is Christ.